Welcome to Opening Doors to Resolution, a mediation podcast with your host, Steve Shulwolf. Thanks, Phil. This is Steve Shulwolf, your host to Opening Doors to Resolution, a mediation podcast. And over the first 12 episodes of the podcast, I've been fortunate to have outstanding guests. We've had actors, lawyers, law professors, judges, comedians. We've had an expert in psychology and hydrogeology. And we've talked, as seems appropriate over the last year, about COVID, both insurance coverage for and the impacts it has on trying cases and how to do that virtually. Last episode, episode 12, I did something for the first time. In a mediation podcast, I sat down and talked with another mediator, Jeff Kachavik. And Jeff and I talked about confidentiality issues in mediation, and I had such a good time talking with Jeff, I thought maybe we can talk to some other mediators. So today we have, it's my great fortune to have Winter Wheeler as my guest. Uh, Winter, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. All right. Now, Winter is a best-selling co-author of the motivational and empowering book, Network. How 20 Women Lawyers Overcame the Confines of COVID-19 Social Distancing to Create Connections, Cultivate Community, and Build Businesses in the Midst of a Global Pandemic. And so, Winter, you're actually the second of these 20 outstanding women to be a guest on my podcast, as I had the fortune of talking about cognitive biases with uh, your co-author, Sherry Bellitz from New York. So uh, she set a pretty high standard. She Um, always does. She does. (laughs) She does. So I'm hopeful we can meet this. Now, I don't want to put you on the spot. So I'll just ask you whether you could. If I had asked you to just list off all 20 co-authors of Network, could you have? I could because I have a copy of the book with me at all times. Oh, okay. (laughs) Well, there you go. There you go. I I should have been more clear about off the top of your head. But uh, no, that's that's great. I've had the fortune to, to look through it. I think it's a great concept. Why don't you explain to my listeners a little bit about what the book was about and kind of what motivated your participation in it? Okay, sure. The book is about how the group of women. There are 20 authors, but our group is much larger than that, actually. So it's all about how we came together and how we used LinkedIn and connections and relationships to build and continue our businesses during COVID, which of course was complicated. (laughs) These are all trapped at home. Now then I use trapped as nicely as I possibly can, but yes, I, I did do feel trapped some of the time. But yeah, the book became, you know, frankly, you just mentioned Sherry. So Sherry is actually the person who came up with the idea and she was the catalyst. And for me, I actually joined the group later than most of the other women. Um, we, we do have some late additions to the group and, and the group changes a little bit every once in a while. But I was late to the party. And so by the time I joined, the book was already an idea. And frankly, I think they just needed a 20th person to round it out because (laughs) I was asked to participate. I don't know if that's true or not. I just say that. I may not have been the very last person, but it was definitely in progress before I came around. 
Well, if I were you, I would spin it. By the time they already had 19, they had the ability to be, you know, very selective. So that 20th author, you know, I I would say had to (laughs) clear a very high hurdle. So, uh, you know, congratulations on that. Well, before we go away from uh, Network, uh, why don't you tell uh, my listeners uh, where they can get it? You can get Networked on Amazon. Just search for hashtag Networked book. All right. Well, great. You and I both are full-time mediators. We both have relatively recently transitioned from litigation. So why don't you tell me a little bit about uh, your background and how you got to where you are today? Okay. Well, that's a big question. Um, (laughs) I litigated, goodness, my gosh, for about 14 years before I went out and focused entirely on mediation. Mediation had always been my end goal. So I I created my litigation career in such a way that it would lead me to mediation and that I would have the best chance of having a very successful mediation practice and have it be robust with the ability to offer lots of expertise in various areas. I didn't want to be pigeonholed or kind of stuck with one particular subject matter. So it was all very intentional, which I I talk about every once in a while. And and to be honest with you, I can't remember if I mentioned that in the book. I think I did. (laughs) It's been, it's been a while since I, since I penned that piece, but Yeah, that's how I got here. I very intentionally arrived at this space. I, if I, if I go way back and tell that whole story, we get back to 2006 or seven when I started working as an insurance defense attorney down in South Florida. And I had the just fortune yeah, it's fortune. I had the fortune of working with a partner who trusted me and believed in me. And he gave me files and basically let me run with them. You know, obviously he he supervised me clearly, but he did. He let me go and do mediations by myself. And I spent I spent a lot of time mediating with one particular mediator and started to come to the realization that mediation was what I liked best about my job. And very shortly thereafter, I realized that I wanted to be the mediator. I didn't just want to be the the lawyer participating. I wanted to help reach those resolutions. And so I started to chat with this mediator in particular I mean, I, I think I saw him probably twice a week at that point. Mediation is mandatory in South Florida. So he gave me a lot of pointers about things that he had done. He was also a young mediator. He, I think, had litigated for fewer than 15 years, which is where I was. And, you know, in most jurisdictions, your mediator, your average mediator is 60 plus white and male. So I knew I was facing a challenge. I'll just call it a challenge. But he gave me a lot of really great advice. And and the first thing that he said to me 
was make sure you get varied experience. Try everything that you can and learn as much as you possibly can and get as good as you possibly can. And so I took all of that to heart and I intentionally picked positions at firms where I would learn different things and be able to continue developing skills that I had that I had learned in previous positions. So I kept all of those things going and here I am, I guess. <laughs> wow. Well, no, that's that's a great story. In fact, I feel like a, a little bit of a slacker because it sounds like there was intention <laughs> and design. And I look at my life and, uh, and my career and uh, I've had the fortune of uh, starting out at a large law firm. I, I then scratched an itch by teaching at a law school in Bulgaria for a couple years. I, I then started my own law firm and litigated. So like you like you said like you said, some mediators a little bit older. I'm not quite 60, but I, I guess I litigated for a little <laughs> bit longer. I, I litigated for 25 uh, years before I actually realized what I'd like to do was was mediation. But one of the things that I think we uh, have a something in common is you talked about going to mediations and, and realizing, hey, as as fun as it is and as rewarding as it is to uh, zealously advocate on behalf of one side of a dispute and hopefully by doing that provide your client with the opportunity to settle in a mutually beneficial way. I started thinking, boy, it'd be pretty cool to be that other guy. And, it, you know, for me, it was a little bit like I was always curious. So what's going on in the other room? Right. Like when so when I was a lawyer and I'm sure you, you've had to do this, too. You know, if you're sitting with your client and, and part of mediation, no matter how efficient uh, Wheeler, you and I try to be in mediation. One of the things I'm sure uh, you tell people is, you know, mediation, there is a lot of waiting in mediation. And so when you're an attorney, you're sitting with your client for a little bit. And so I'd always have little side bets, right? What, you know, what's the mediator <laughs> going to come back and say? And, and, and so I was always fascinated about, you know, what's going on in the other room. So I don't know whether that's curiosity or, or whether we're control freaks, but it always seemed, you know, <laughs> it always seemed to me like I wanted to know. And, and, and that was one reason I think I got into it. But I think you mentioned as well, I think, I think mediation is extremely satisfying in, as you pointed out, you have developed, and I think this is so good, a, a broader skill set so that you can do different matters. For me, for the last year, I had never done family law. And I've been doing, admittedly, pro bono. But to hone my skills as a mediator, I've, I've jumped into to family law. And, and, and what, I, what I have found is that while family law is different than some of the complex commercial litigation that I specialized in as a litigator, all disputes, whether it's a breakup of a family or a breakup of a business relationship, has a component of putting aside all the legal issues, just a psychological and an emotional component. And it's raw in family law. Sometimes, sometimes family law disputes are resolved more dispassionately than business disputes. But I find that being able to do a variety of different matters makes me, you know, 
more well-rounded to do the next one. And it sounds like that's something that you probably realized a lot earlier than I was because you, you've been kind of planning on being able to do this in, in advance. What made you, you know, come to that realization that it would help you in the future to get more well-rounded? Well, like I said, I had a mediator mentor who flat out told me that as I was getting started. But I realized by, you know, through my career and as I evolved, I was always more satisfied with a mediator that had more depth that I knew I could rely on as an attorney. Because there's there's something about a good mediator that is just special. Now, granted, of course, mediation is like the only thing I ever want to do with my life ever. So (laughs) I'm a little bit biased, but there's something about a great mediator that, like you said, transcends those areas of law. And if you can figure out how to effectively work with people and what your particular your particular strategies are, what have you, having the legal knowledge on top of that is the icing on the cake. So the way that I work, uh, I focus very heavily on the litigants experience. And I focus on what I call the four cornerstones, the four cornerstones, (laughs) I can't speak today, of mediation. And those are emotional intelligence, cultural knowledge, cultural immersion, and genuine empathy. So those are the things that I focus on. And that's what helps me work best with litigants. So of course, in most of my mediations, I would say 99.9%, there are still attorneys involved. It is very, very rare for me to have a situation where there are no attorneys involved, although it does happen. But when attorneys are involved, they are very grateful that I can focus on all of the emotional things. But also on top of that, I have the legal knowledge that they need to help them make the decisions that they would like to make or for me to help explain to their clients how things work with the law. Because As you know, as a mediator, most of our job is to reframe arguments and reframe positions. So if an attorney has been having the same conversation in the exact same way with their client for a year plus, and it's not getting through, (laughs) they need to try another way to say it. And it's not not a natural skill set to be able to do that naturally or not, I'm not sure, but I have it. And so I think that the, and I'm getting completely off your topic, but I'm going to keep on. You keep going. You're on a roll. So don't worry about it. (laughs) But I focus on, like I said, those four cornerstones and it really helps both the litigant and the attorney. And uh, I, I think yeah, having the legal knowledge just to add on top is like icing on the cake. Now, for example, I also do domestic work. I do family law mediations, and I have a specialty in domestic violence situations. And that is not law that I practiced regularly, at least. I have, of course, taken the time to 
study your research and learn and I keep up with every area of the law that that I know is going to come before me. But it's not something that I did regularly. So I don't have years of experience in that realm to fall back on. But as you said, also, you don't always need that. A lot of it is compassion. A lot of it is simply listening. And a lot of it is understanding how people feel and how they got before you on that mediation day. Sure. Well, you know, one of the things that I find fascinating about mediation is that every mediation is different. And sometimes you go into a mediation thinking that, boy, my understanding of this legal issue, you know, is should be really helpful. And other times you're thinking, oh, you know, this sounds like it might be an emotional dispute, but you never really know until it starts. And I think one of the things, one of the keys in my mind of being an effective mediator is being very flexible and being able to have different tools in your toolbox, not to throw out cliches, but you know, you just don't know on that day what the parties need be able to look at things, as you said, differently uh, to reframe things. And whether it's, you know, you you have an understanding of, of the law. I like to say I look at disputes and, and, and I think it's very similar to how you were looking at it. But sometimes I describe, you know, the skills that are useful for mediation is, you know, I think it does help parties to have somebody with our Uh, litigation background, somebody who is able to both analyze legal issues and both have the experience to know how that's going to play out factually. Because I think one of the things that happens in disputes is somebody might feel that they're wronged and they might feel very strongly about that. And in the back of their mind, they recognize that there's probably not a lot of proof of that, but in their mind that they were, you know, they're wrong. And and so, you know, it takes somebody to subtly say, look, I empathize with you. I understand where you're going with this, but you realize that if we can't come to a resolution, you're going to go to court. And what is it that you're actually going to show in front of a jury? Because there's certain things that you might think, but, you know, let's talk with your lawyers about hearsay and the evidentiary rules. And so to have somebody who has a background of evaluating a story, a narrative of a case, but also has a good understanding as how that might be presented to the finder of fact is something that I think former litigators like ourselves can do. One of the things that led me And this sounds pretty boring, but it's true. I was always a person at the firms that I worked at who liked numbers. And I say this trying to avoid people thinking that I have this attitude that that all disputes can get boiled down to numbers. Some can, some can't. A lot of commercial matters at some point devolve into discussions about about numbers. And I do think, you know, one of the things that I like to say is in addition to being hopefully attuned to the emotional components of a dispute and the legal components of the dispute, I also have a capability of reframing issues mathematically and from a probability standpoint, because I, I, I have, I promised you when we talked, I would not 
subject you to a probability game. But I do that uh, from time to time, <laughs> you know, on the podcast. And it, it really is to show that at the end of the day, what we're trying to do is predict the future. We're trying to say, what's the likelihood that a party is going to achieve their goals? And let's assign some risk factors to it. And let's try to come up with a solution that encapsulates all of those risk factors. And so for whatever reason, at every firm I was at, I was the guy who had to write settlement reports. I was the guy who looked over people's mediation uh, strategies. And I think that's one of the reasons I was so darn curious as to what was going on in the other room. Because in, in my <laughs> mind, uh, you know, I had some ideas. But one thing that for me, I'll admit, in making the transition from litigating to, to mediating, I'm not going to say I have trouble with, but from time to time, I have to be self-aware and make sure that I, I catch myself, is, you know, as a lawyer, I probably for every case, if I was on one side or the other, would have developed a strategy of how I would have effectively have tried to get from point A to B, right? You know, would the strategy be? And one of the things as a mediator that I have found, and I think I've gotten better, and it's going to be a life journey, I have forced myself to recognize there's more than one way to skin a cat. Some people might have a different negotiation philosophy. And as a mediator, you need to be able to help translate those strategies to the other side. And as you said, reframe issues and try to make people take a step back and think about something. Because, you know, sometimes what you see in mediation is people get frustrated or upset if the other party doesn't see the world from their eyes. And as a mediator, you try to tell them there's not going to necessarily be a kumbaya moment here, but let's try to at least empathize with how they're looking at something. Let's try to recognize that there might be some issues that they're raising that impact your valuation of the case and, and go from there. Well, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm a lawyer. I will always be a lawyer. I can't not think like a lawyer. I'm aware of that <laughs> when I go when I go into these situations, and you know we start out by me listening, right? That's what I do all day. I listen, and I'm of course evaluating and taking notes on what I think might be weaknesses or you know any anything at all, right? That I learn about the that I learn about the case because I know that the parties are going to ask me for my opinion and they're going to ask me what's the best way to negotiate this and sometimes they'll say this is where we're trying to go is that even going to be possible so uh, all of those evaluations are are happening in my head i can't stop that right but i think that the issue is whether or not the mediator uses that information in a helpful way or if they use that information for lack, I mean, if they just use it incorrectly. So as a mediator, I have to be neutral. My job is to be neutral. That's what I'm paid for. So I make sure that whatever it is that I'm thinking myself, I have to be open to whatever anyone else says. And the thing is, I think part of being a good mediator means you know that you don't know everything. I haven't lived these files the way that the parties and the attorneys have. And so the benefit, one of the biggest benefits of having a mediator is just getting that initial third party reaction to the things that you're saying. 
And does it does it sound feasible? Does it sound viable? Is that really something that you would say before a jury? But of course, it depends on what what the parties ask me. Otherwise, I, I, I keep most of that stuff to myself. But yeah, I think when we're talking about mediators making those decisions in their heads, it definitely happens. And a lot of what I see, and I know this is different in different jurisdictions, how people like to utilize mediators, but what I see a lot is attorneys asking me for very detailed opinions, very, very detailed opinions, asking what I think a case is worth or, you know, depending on where that case is pending and what the the parties themselves look like, what the credibility of certain witnesses, if I have that kind of information too. And so I find that a lot of my clients come to me for information gathering. They use mediation for information gathering and some, you know, informal discovery. And as long as everybody knows that that's what's going on, you know, it's fine. I think I answered your question. Oh, yeah. No, <laughs> no you did. You did. You also provided some insight in terms of uh, how you look at things. You know, you mentioned depending on jurisdictions. So I don't think I covered this up front. So uh, you're based, I believe, in, in Atlanta. I am physically based in Atlanta. I am available in person and online everywhere. Right. And that's been a lot easier for uh, all of us. Uh, yeah, I, uh, you know, before, <laughs> yes, sure. b- right, before we were doing, uh, you know, Zoom mediations, I, I had moved from Chicago. So I like to say for travel purposes, I have two home bases, Austin, Texas, and, and, and Chicago. But, you know, when I, when I litigated, I litigated nationally and, and uh, make my services available. In, in any jurisdiction. And I, I, I think it's interesting what you pointed out. I think the attitudes of what a mediator should do vary, you know, from different jurisdictions. And one of the things that I realized is I think the perception of what a mediator should do among lawyers and mediators is is different. I, I read a uh, the ABA had uh, I think it was their dispute resolution uh, uh, section had a, a task force that issued a report a few years ago, and what they did is they they talked to different mediators and ADR professionals and attorneys and asked them you know certain questions about their attitude about mediation. And I'm I'm not looking at it right now, but the 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 punchline was. Attorneys are much more open, and this does vary, you know, as you pointed out, you know, geographically, but in general, this is true that attorneys are much more open to having a mediator state a definitive opinion or make a recommendation for a specific settlement than mediators are. And I think mediators are less willing to to do that because we as mediators, at the end of the day, want to make sure that Ultimately, if there's an agreement, it's absolutely, undeniably the result of a voluntary agreement among the parties and that they have self-determination. That's one of the great right. things about mediation is that, you know, I, I'm sure you've told people this is your opportunity today to avoid 12 strangers or a man or a woman in a black robe deciding your fate. You get to take hold of your fate. And hopefully we can uh, we can do that today. But one thing I, I guess before I became a mediator, I didn't realize 
you know, what a concern there would be. Uh, I think you said most of your mediations, 99% have lawyers involved. That's really the same for me. With my pro bono matter, sometimes you do have pro se litigants, and that that makes it a little bit more difficult. But I, I, I joke and say that the clients that I had when I was doing commercial matters were not exactly wallflowers. So when we went into a mediation, I was never really too concerned about a mediator steamrolling, you know, me and my client. One, I thought I would stand up to it if I thought that was happening. And I knew my my client understood very well that even if a mediator strongly suggested you know, that they needed to do X. If they weren't willing to do X, then they they weren't going to do that. But mediators, I think, are more concerned about being asked to, I guess, do what's called evaluative mediation as opposed to mere facilitative mediation. So, So one thing that I do is once I started learning more about this different attitude, I think one of the crucial things for a successful mediation is to set expectations. People understand. I think you were talking about when you were, you know, people might be doing it for information gathering. And as long as everybody understands that that's what's going on, it's fine. So one of the things that I try to do is in a pre-mediation call is just to say, look, I'm the type of mediator who, unless you guys tell me that's not what you're looking for, is going to ask some pointed questions about the strengths and weaknesses to each of your respective sides so that Hopefully, we can make you think through all the litigation risks. And so I'm not going to be solely facilitative. I'm going to use some analytical techniques. But frankly, I'm not going to come up with what Steve Showolf thinks is the proper settlement for this, unless maybe we get right. unless we get to like an impasse and then we get to a point where the parties might be willing to accept a mediator's number. However, a particular mediation goes, I think it's really important to set the expectations on a on a, a pre-mediation call. And just hearing the way you were talking about your philosophy and making sure that people understood what a mediation could be used for, it might not lead to a settlement, but it still might help the parties understand better than they did when they walked in what the other side is thinking and where the case is, is, is going. So how do you make sure everybody's on the same page? Oh, I just talk to them about it, really. I make sure I'm very clear with everybody about what's going on. And so I I don't always have the benefit of having a pre-mediation call or pre-mediation report. Sometimes uh, I would say most of the time I go in there blind, not knowing what's about to hit me. (laughs) But, you know, you feel it out. You feel out the situation. You ask people what they want and get information about how they would like to get there. And, you know, people give you more information than they realize when they speak. Of course, you focus on how they're saying what they're saying, the exact words that they're using, the body language, all of that. And I can figure out what the best approach is for each person and for each room. And we, we approach it like that. And so since I do have the benefit of being in every room, I'm able to facilitate by encouraging people to think about certain aspects of the case or to focus less on certain aspects of the case. Because ultimately, people want to gain information and they want to settle those matters 
during mediation. And they're very open to doing that in whatever way it needs to be done. And I'm very lucky. I'm very fortunate. My clients trust me. I'm not usually going into a situation where I feel like I'm trying to gain trust as we go along. I think people are very well aware at this point of my reputation and the way that I conduct my mediations. With that said, of course, if an attorney comes to me and they say, this is the way that I would like for this to be negotiated. These are the things that I'm trying to accomplish. And my client needs X from you. Then I can also adjust for that. Because if, you've, if you're before me, it means that you've been unable to resolve the matter yourself. And thankfully, I guess, maybe thankfully is the right word. Thankfully, my clients are very open to what I have to say. And again, I think that goes back to trust and reputation. But, you know, my, my mediation tactics, I'll call them, they, they change with every mediation, with every person that I come in contact with. And I would say that what remains static, of course, are those four cornerstones that I described and my, my very litigant-focused approach. That's very interesting. So how, you know, what I heard a little bit there is, you know, we as mediators, as you pointed out, we're listeners. We spend most of the time, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of ironic. Here we are on a podcast uh, you know, both going back and forth talking a lot. But, you know, when it comes to mediation, it's to ask the right question and then listen to the answer and hope the answer is longer than the question. But one thing that I heard you, you say is you pick up a lot of information. You pick up information by people's bodies, language, you're in the room. You know, these days that means you're in the room virtually via Zoom. So what's been your impression on how has Zoom impacted your ability to pick up information, whether it be nonverbal cues or, you know, do you feel it's had uh, an impact positive or, or negative on uh, the practice of mediation? Well, I actually do still mediate in person, so I'm doing that as well. But I would say that online mediation has not affected the way that I mediate. Sometimes it's actually best to be online, depending on the, the temperature in each room. Now, I will also say that a lot of people come to me because they have emotional clients and they're not sure how to handle those emotions. So I'm often seeing a specific type of person. I have a, a shorter article on my website after like the first month of doing online mediations. And one of the things that I noticed was, you know, when I litigated, sometimes you take a deposition and if maybe opposing counsel might push the boundaries of, of coaching or overly aggressively objecting, you might make a decision based on counsel as opposed to the party to videotape the deposition. And I think most litigators, right. you know, have, have, have done that. Well, I found that, you know, everybody, like I said, has different negotiation tactics. I personally, uh, I, I think I could zealously advocate without 
yelling or demeaning opposing counsel and and always trying to keep all doors Uh, open by just having civil conversations. I would say out there, I know this might be a shock for some people, but not every lawyer adheres to that philosophy. And so there's some lawyers who, you know, they'll get red in the face, you know, they'll wag their finger, you might have some saliva, you know, leak out of their mouth as they're, you know, talking, (laughs) (laughs) you you know. But the point is, I think anybody who's predisposed to be that way has a difficult time being that way on Zoom, where the camera's on them and they're looking at their computer screen and it demonstrates how you are being perceived by a neutral, let alone, you know, anybody else. And, and so I think, like you said, depending on the temperature of, of, of a mediation, you know, every, every mediation is different. So I'm not saying in all cases it's better, but in some cases it can be better, even though obviously if you're not in the same room, you do sometimes uh, miss things. No, I don't agree with that. I don't miss things. I have, not everybody is like this, but I'm an empath and I just have an ability to to pick those things up. So for me, being online is often more helpful because I get to see the litigant in their natural environment, in their natural habitat, I suppose. And that is super helpful. And it's, it's a different set of cues than I would get in person, but it's a very useful set of cues. So it, it just balances out, really. And there are some cases that, that need to be mediated in person. And if, if an attorney is at all questioning whether or not something can be done online, I encourage all of my clients, potential clients, to call me. And we can work through what whatever the issues are that they're concerned about while helping them figure out if it's something that we can do online or if it's something that needs to be done in person. But again, I, I would say that I'm not I'm not missing the cues, but I also know that I have a natural ability that most people don't have. I understand the hesitation that a lot of attorneys have when it comes to when it comes to deciding to do something online with a mediator because of all of the things that you said a, a lot of people can't pick up on those cues through the screen and those are the people who come to me and ask me whether something can be done by zoom and you know i mean I, I'm, I'm not trying to toot my own horn i'm just i'm i'm telling you how things work for me personally and uh, yeah, being online has has absolutely helped. It's not changed anything. Yeah, All I right. like doing it online, frankly. Well, there you go. And and there's nothing wrong with the with actually admitting that you are tooting your own horn because uh, those are <laughs> skills that are important. And you know, I wasn't suggesting. Uh, you know, that you, you know, we're, we're missing anything. I do think that there are folks who feel less comfortable, as you pointed out with, um, you know, their role, whether it's the attorney or the party, you know, sometimes mediations are often resolved at some point, narrowing the gap and letting the parties without their attorneys, maybe have the final discussion with each other. And, uh, you know, that's those things, in every individual case, if, if, if every party, not just the mediator, but if the parties and their attorneys 
have some reticence about what they're picking up, uh, whether it be in person or online. It just impacts the dynamic of the mediation. What I'm hearing from you is that, you know, you do an outstanding job of making sure people feel comfortable, making sure they, they, that they trust you and recognizing that whether it's live or online, there'll be different cues to look for and that, you know, you're very well skilled in, in picking that up. So hopefully I am as well, but, uh, you know, there's no, there's no problem that you're tooting your own horn on that. So, uh, uh, you know, right. I mean, that's, that's why we're doing this a little bit. So, uh, no worries at all. You know, I, I've read and looked at, uh, some of the things that you've done, uh, with, with other, uh, folks. Uh, I, I, I know this is clearly not your first, uh, podcast or opportunity to get the, uh, the word out. So I know, anti-bias standards uh, for mediations and and other dispute resolution professionals is something that uh, you've talked about uh, in the past and is important to you. So I wanted to give you the opportunity to address that a little bit on this podcast. Sure. It's something that's very important to me because I I see bias everywhere and it is everywhere. And I think most people don't understand what it is or what it means they're more likely to assume that you're being negative or you're insulting them, that somehow bias equals racist or homophobic or bigot, whatever the ism or whatever could be, when in reality that is not what it is. So you develop a bias based on the sum total of your life experiences, including things you have absolutely no control over. And your brain just creates these shortcuts for you because you can't possibly process absolutely everything that comes comes your way. You would be a neurotic mess. But it makes these shortcuts so that when you see A, you think B and you move accordingly. And what anti-bias teachings do is they let you know what your bias is. And again, so sometimes people call it unconscious bias. And that's a, that's a pretty good term for it because it's something that you're doing that you don't know that you're doing. So if you can learn about it, if you can make yourself conscious of the bias, you can address it and work through it. For example, if you know you have a bias against people who wear red, then when you see someone who's wearing red, you will check yourself. You will think twice about what opinion you've made about that person and make sure it has nothing to do with the fact that they're wearing red. And I think that's the easiest way that I could describe it. But I think it is so important for neutrals to be aware of those biases that we all have. Everybody has them. Whether you know it or not, we all have them. But we need to be aware of them because we are there to be neutral. Everyone should come into the room, the virtual room, the real room, the table, whatever. They should come to me on equal footing. And if that is not the case, then a mediator will have failed in the most basic of their functions. If I have a bias towards someone, then I have hurt the other people there. And that's that's not fair. 
it's not right. And a mediator needs to know what those biases are, because if they exist and you cannot work through them, you should not, cannot be mediating that case. Well, no, I think that's extremely well said. I'm thinking right now, and I, I don't think that I have a bias for towards people wearing red. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I'll try to make sure. I don't mean to make, make light of it because, uh, you know, I think people... As you, I think, alluded to at the beginning, there's certain people who can get very defensive about even the thought that it's exercise that is absolutely necessary to do some self, you know, introspection, you know, because there's a knee jerk reaction that, well, of course, I don't have a prejudice against people who wear red. You know, that that's just a knee jerk reaction. How dare you tell me uh, that I'm a, a reddist, <laughs> you know, or <laughs> Yeah. Right. You know, it's one thing like, I mean, you mentioned, uh, I think earlier in the podcast that uh, maybe most of the mediators in, in, in your region or frankly, across the country are, you know, uh, o- over 60 uh, white, white males. So uh, I admit I fit two, two out of those three things. And, and one of them, <laughs> one of them, at least if I'm lucky, I'll hit at some point, right? Uh, you know, so at some point, I'll, right. I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll have the trifecta, at least, uh, you know, that that's a goal. We hope, yeah, right. we hope. You'll get there, don't worry. Yeah, well, you know, we never know. You have to live every day like it could be your last. But, you know, I think one of the, I think there's two things that are, are, are really important here is one that we get more diversity in the ADR community and that there are people out there who, you know, can comfort different litigants of different backgrounds and, and persuasions. And, 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 and that's really important that, that the mediators, you know, start to resemble, you know, more the fabric of America and, and, and the parties in front of them. And, and, and I fully support, you know, those type of efforts. Obviously I can't, you know, change my stripes in, in terms of my outward stripes, but, you know, I, I have, you know, I think in the last, you know, couple of years really have attempted as much as I can, you know, to take the courses and ask the questions of myself to at least make make sure you understand where your biases come from. And and hopefully, like you said, you know, everybody's entitled to a neutral who, you know, doesn't come into uh, a, a case for whatever reason with preconceived biases because neutrality is really the central touchstone of of mediation. And and so I've seen, you know, and heard you elsewhere, you know, talk about it. So I wanted to make sure that that was a topic that that you could address today. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I love talking about that and uh, help. I like to help spread awareness of what bias actually is, because like you said, people will assume that it's because they're being they're being accused of having a prejudice and that's definitely not what it is so yes thank you no no not not at all and so we've got time for maybe one more topic and and i this was on uh something that you had sent me so we probably don't have time to get into this you know in as much detail as you do in other settings but uh you know talking about the understanding and the importance of language its impact on uh the the justice system, and you point out specifically the African-American uh, vernacular of, uh, y- y- you know, of the way certain people speak. Talk to me a little bit in terms of, uh, you know, why you think that, that that's so important that, uh, you know, mediators or people in general just have a better understanding of that. Well, first and foremost, with African-American vernacular English in particular, it is typically looked down upon and those who speak the dialect are typically assumed to be less intelligent, 
lazy. And those are just two of the negative attributes that come with it. And so with the platform that I have and the knowledge that I have of that specific issue, I like to make sure I talk about it uh, as much as I possibly can, because most people don't even realize that AAVE, what we call it for short, is a dialect. And they genuinely believe that uh, people who speak that dialect simply don't understand English. And that's that could not be farther from the truth. And one way that I talk about it with many people is, you know, Black Americans watch television. Television is in standard English. <laughs> we understand it. The dialect that... And I say we, I don't, I don't typically speak in the dialect um, and I don't speak it natively, but the assumption is a lack of knowledge and that a lack of trying, a lack of availability of educational resources. And it's just not right. It's just, it's just a false belief. It's just wrong. Right. And I like to make that clear. And another thing that is crucially important, vital, when you're mediating and when you represent someone who speaks in that dialect, you need to understand what the differences are in syntax and how they might express themselves. And a common example, the most common example, is the use of the double negative. So I, I often hear attorneys interpreting what their clients have told them and having understood the opposite of what was said. So for example, if someone, if I have an attorney who says, she told me that never happened, but I'm listening because the, the plaintiff is in the room or the defendant is in the room and I hear what they say and it's literally the opposite of what the attorney said, you know, it's it's never a fun conversation to have. Like, no, you've you've got the opposite thought of what actually happened here. And the most extreme example that I've seen in my practice was actually two uh, black participants. So we had a black attorney and a black plaintiff. The plaintiff spoke AAVE. The attorney did not. And he misunderstood the, the most important thing for his case, which was where the accident took place. So having to tell him that he had actually sued the wrong entity was not much fun for me, but it had to happen. Wow. But had he, yeah, but had he been more aware of how she was using her language, it would not have happened. I should not have been the first person to pick up on what she was saying, you know, a year and a half into this case. But that's the most extreme example I've seen. So <laughs> that's a pretty extreme example. You, you know, early in your answer, you mentioned something about, you know, African Americans watch TV. And one thing that, you know, popped into my mind just about how I think there's this subconscious you know, understanding of, of culture and, 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 you know, frankly, different dialects. So when I was in Bulgaria, most people 
New England, most Bulgarians there only really had encountered English through TV shows. And so one thing that I, I, I don't think I had fully internalized until I was there was just the stereotypes of African-Americans because just from watching TV and, and, and let me tell you back in the, you know, nineties when I was in Bulgaria, it wasn't exactly like they were getting the top, you know, they weren't getting, you know, what you'd be watching tonight on Netflix if you had to choose, you know, from programming. I mean, you know, it was weird what ultimately got over there, but their impressions and they, and these people, you know, were a product of what they were watching. So I had, you know, very good friends. I'm still very good friends with, uh, you know, today. And we would just be talking about America because, you know, it was fascinating to them, uh, you know, prior, you know, only a few years before I went over there, it was behind the Iron Curtain. And so there was a lot of curiosity, but their understanding of what they thought the typical African-American, you know, looked and sounded like was based off of TV. And I can tell you, it was not an accurate depiction. And that really stuck with me, you know, because I don't think that these people were, you know, saying that because they were racist. They were just saying that because that's what they saw on TV. And so I think that had always opened my eyes into realizing just how you have to be very careful of what your sources of information are and what assumptions you're making, you know, based on the narrow bubble that you might be living in. And uh, so, yeah, I'm not trying to say I'm the most self-aware person in the world, but it didn't really make me take a step back and realize, boy, you know, these, these are good people who are drawing some conclusions based on the limited information that they have. And I, I think that goes back in my mind about anti-bias, you know, standards. It's just trying to make sure that people think about things about where they've gotten information so that they can ask themselves whether they have these biases, including, you know, biases based on, you know, perhaps the way, whether they think people are speaking proper English or not. Exactly. Yes. (laughs) And I have no idea whether this is another example. I I try to always work in, uh, you know, on on LinkedIn. I think you and I, we've basically met, you know, online on on LinkedIn. And I, I have a kind of a running you know, shtick with uh, this uh, other attorney uh, about if we either of us find something related to baseball, you know, we work it into uh, a post and 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 tag each other and 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 talk about you know different you know baseball issues. That's not Sherry. <laughs> That's well, no, I know Sherry's a Yankees fan, and we we we've talked. <laughs> look, what? No, I told I've told Sherry, and I'll I'll say this here. You know, most Yankees fans they're the worst people to talk baseball with because they don't recognize that there's any <laughs> other teams other than the Yankees and the Red Sox, right? You know, they, 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 you know, they, they, there's no recognition that any other team exists. So. I, I'm a White Sox fan, which, you know, that means I'm used to being second fiddle even, you know, in, in, in the town that, you know, that, that, that we're from. But, you know, I thought, you know, there was a lot of discussion of this, I guess, well, it wasn't last year, so it was two years. So uh, one of my favorite players, uh, the White Sox have a shortstop, Tim Anderson. He's the only African-American on the team. He brings people from uh, the South Side uh, to Kansas City to go see the uh, the Negro Baseball uh, Museum every, every year. And he's he's very outspoken and he's 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 a more flamboyant uh, player. So I, I've never quite understood the unwritten rule in baseball that, you know, pitchers are allowed to celebrate after they strike people out. But if somebody hits a homer and does a little bit of bat flip, uh, you know, that. 
that's that's taboo. Actually, in the pandemic, I admit, you know, I craved baseball so much. I watched some of the Korean league and those guys are insane they hit homers they do backflips you know they start moonwalking down to first base and you know i have no i i have no problem with that but i think this one incident that i'm talking about shows where sometimes uh you know white america has good intentions of trying to understand everything they set up rules that are inflexible so so the the Sox and the the royals don't really like each other and and Anderson won a game with uh, and bat flipped after he hit a home run. And, uh, you know, the Royals didn't like that very much. And it wasn't really much of a surprise at the next game that Anderson got hit. So the, the pitcher who hit him got got thrown out. And Anderson, after getting hit with a 90 plus fastball, obviously wasn't very pleased and, you know, reacted as most, you know, professional athletes uh, would in that situation by voicing his displeasure to uh, the other pitcher. In doing so, he said uh, the N-word. And it now baseball wound up suspending Anderson for more games than the guy who hit him. And it was because the people who were all white who were in the executive committee had decided that they had a rule that you can't say that. Now I can tell you this, if, if somebody gets hit and calls somebody an effing, you know, what, you know, whatever, you know, profanity, uh, tirade, they're typically not suspended for that many games. So baseball made a point that they were suspending Anderson for use of a word that they wanted to eliminate from the game. And I can understand where they're coming from, but on the other hand, it felt to me that it was, a complete lack of understanding of Anderson at that point. And, uh, you know, the, the White Sox, again, obviously, you know, you, you defend your, your team. Uh, Kenny Williams, I think, is still the only uh, African-American uh, VP uh, and was the GM when they won the World Series in, in 2005. And, you know, Williams was on record as saying that he thought it was a lack of understanding and that Anderson was being singled out for violating a rule that needed to be applied with some more flexibility. So that's an example of at least some, you know, some dialect. So I I don't know whether you you were aware of that situation or what your thoughts are, or maybe I'm just completely being inappropriate and bringing it up, but I just thought I wanted to work baseball into this. And so I thought it was a good way to, to, to ask you what you thought. Well, slang and curse words and that word in particular is a very violent word it has nothing to do with african-american vernacular english a dialect has to do with syntax that's it it doesn't include special words nothing of the sort a dialect of english will include whatever the English, whatever words are available in the English language, in standard English. So there's no correlation between AAVE and the usage of that word. That is a different conversation. That's a cultural conversation. And uh, yeah, that's, that's, (laughs) that's not a topic I typically speak on. I don't make, I'm not making judgments on any Black person's usage of that word. People have different reasons for why they use it. Yeah. And that's that's all I got on that one. (laughs) What is more concerning to me is the lack of diversity on the team and in their management. 
Well, right. And, you know, African-Americans in baseball have uh, been uh, declining over the last, uh, you know, couple of decades. So I think that's that's an unfortunate thing. But I, I do think that baseball, you know, needs to, you know, reach out more into communities where, you know, for whatever reason, they, they haven't been as successful. So I'd like to think that the Sox do an okay job. And I, I think it's a very low bar compared to the rest of the league. But they do have some uh, some camps in the South Side for some African uh, American youngsters, which just over the last, I think, five years have actually had uh, some some folks graduate from the their academy and, and, and be drafted. So, uh, you know, it's going in the right direction. But there's a lot of improvement that can be made. And really, I, yeah, I agree with you in the sense of, I, I guess I didn't mean to derail us to go into something uh, too far afield, but I think uh, in my mind, the, the punishment that was doled out was based on an understanding of a bunch of, you know, white folks who might not, I think, fully appreciated all factors uh, that went into, you know, the, the their ultimate decisions. But, you know, th- th- that can be a conversation for another day. I, I didn't mean any disrespect by bringing it up. No, I mean, I know you didn't, but I, I have no, I have no opinion. I don't know anything about baseball. Um, the idea of going to what I'm assuming, um, based on the way that you said it, the South side is a lower income area. Um, I have issues with that, but you know, like I said, that's, <laughs> that's outside my realm of expertise. I have no opinions that I would like to express. Oh yeah, yeah well, well, sure. Issues. <laughs> yeah, well, Chicago, for better or worse, uh, the two uh, baseball teams. There's the Cubs are on the north side, the Sox are uh, on the south side. My my family was south side uh, uh, family, but uh, yeah, there's there, there's the there Chicago, and that this is a way off field. Is a is is definitely a segregated city of uh, pockets of different communities uh, throughout, but it. Uh, and I guess we can leave that <laughs> at that. But yeah, I uh, mean, I don't, I don't have any opinions on any of it. I don't know anything about it. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Well, listen, you had plenty of opinions on many other topics that we've spent uh, a, a fair amount of time on today, and I, I enjoyed, you know, vetting those opinions with you, sharing, uh, you know, our thoughts, comparing uh, some notes, and uh, very much appreciate uh, your willingness to uh, come on the podcast, and uh, you know, like. I said at the beginning, you're you're one of the the 20 authors of of, of networked, and uh, I think uh, what you guys have all accomplished is something that uh, is is so admirable. And uh, just seeing how you guys support each other through your different diverse. Uh, areas. It's really inspiring. And uh, I have been fortunate enough to, uh, you know, run across it online. And I think it's, uh, it, it helped me through, uh, you know, COVID, uh, you know, just that little bit, just like it helped you all. And, and thank you. Oh, nice. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> thank you so much. I'm glad that we got to talk. This closes the door on opening doors to resolution, a mediation podcast. Please join us next time where Steve will discuss with a new guest topics related to mediation, negotiation, and resolution. Thank you for listening.